When I was a preteen, I had a really significant experience in my life that I would say in some ways really even changed the trajectory of my life. And, and that is when I tried pineapple on pizza for the first time. You know, it was like scales came off of my tongue and it's like I really tasted for the first time. You know, it's like I went from unrighteousness, not having pineapple on pizza, to righteousness, putting pineapple on pizza. You know, at, from that point on, I was converted. Now, I could belabor this analogy here, but I'll start to sound like Pastor Eldon pretty quick, who loves a good food analogy. And so I want to move on and talk to you about conversion. That's our big subject today. But I'd also like to illustrate where we've come so far in our series and illustrate it this way. Let's say I give you a call later today, call you on the phone. For us to talk, you must answer the phone. But the question can be asked, well, why do you answer the phone? Well, you answer the phone because I called. We started this series talking about this rich, complicated doctrine of election, where it says in Ephesians 1 that God chose you before the foundation of the world to be saved, to be in Christ. And so that has to do with this divine initiative of God. And then we talked about gospel call, this call that goes out about the good news. And we get to have a part in that. We get to have a part in what's called the general gospel call. We proclaim Christ to other people. We tell them about Jesus. We preach the gospel. But God makes that call effective in the lives of those who respond. Divine initiative. Last week we looked at regeneration, that God takes a, a dead heart and makes it alive. He gives us rebirth. We can't make ourselves born. We can't make ourselves born again. It's called regeneration, the grace of rebirth, divine initiative. God calls. And so in the one sense, I, I call you and that's why you pick up. I want to emphasize, yes, there's some divine initiative by God that takes place, and we've looked at that for a number of weeks. But today with our time, we're really looking at the fact that you must answer the phone. You have to pick up the call. We're going to look at the emphasis that, yes, the Bible talks a lot about God's divine initiative. And the Bible talks a lot about the necessity of what we do. And in this case, regarding conversion, it's our willful response. Let me define conversion for you as we get going. Conversion is our willing response to the gospel call in which we sincerely repent of sins and placed our trust in Christ for salvation. If you have a Bible, why don't you open it to Romans chapter 10. I'm gonna read verses nine through 13. Here's our text, here's the word of God. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
Let me give you our, uh, my outline and then we'll work our way through it. First, we'll look at two aspects of conversion. Then we'll look at three elements that are present in conversion. And then we'll look at four implications about conversion for our lives. That's my not so sneaky way of actually getting to give nine points. <laughs> Looks like three, it's actually nine. So let's start to work through them. First, let's look at two aspects of conversion. I'll tell you what they are right now. Repentance and faith. Think of it as two, uh, two sides to the same coin. There are two united but distinct parts to conversion, repentance and faith. Now, I gave you a definition of conversion, but in its most simplest form, conversion means turning. Conversion means turning. And it's not just a turning to, it's also a turning from. So I want you to think of turning in these ways. Conversion means turning from sin and turning to Christ. I've illustrated it this way before, much to the chagrin of people from the prairies. If I'm headed toward Manitoba, salvation is actually found in turning from sin, death, and destruction. In the analogy, that's Manitoba. And at the same time, turning from Manitoba, turning from sin, death, and destruction, and at the same time, turning to Christ, or in the illustration, to West Coast elitism, thinking we live in the best place, which we do. Conversion is turning from sin, Manitoba, from sin, and to Christ. They go hand in hand, a turning from and a turning to, two sides of the same coin. To truly turn to Christ means to also turn from sin, from your own merits, from your own way, and to God. You're abandoning your righteousness in order to embrace Christ's righteousness. Conversion is an acknowledgement that I can't save me. I need Jesus to save me. So looking at these aspects of conversion one at a time, let's, let's zoom in a little bit at repentance. Repentance is, here's another definition, Repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. The aspect of repentance and conversion has to do with recognizing you're a sinner, a sinner who needs divine help, a sinner who needs divine grace. This is different than just feeling bad about something or even deep remorse over your actions. Paul makes that clear in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Really helpful text. Listen closely. Paul says, I rejoice to the Corinthians church, he's saying this. I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a, here's a helpful term, you felt a godly grief. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. See the difference? Genuine repentance is a personal decision to turn from sin and make a commitment to turn from it and to God. Now that doesn't mean we won't continue to struggle with sin. I'm going to talk about that a little bit more later on. It does mean though that we renounce it and we turn from it and we certainly turn from trusting in anything other than Christ. 
looking at that other side of the same coin, looking at faith. Let me define it for us. Saving faith is trust in Jesus Christ as a living person for forgiveness of sins and for eternal life with God. As our text says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The heart and mouth, both are named there. Why? Because they represent inward belief and outward confession. Inward belief and outward confession. Genuine faith, genuine saving faith includes inward belief and outward confession. Before, my, before I, I met my now wife, Emily, she, was, she, she had become really captivated by Jesus and decided to buy a Bible and start reading the Bible. And she, so she got a Bible and like you do with any other book, you, you start at the beginning and she read Genesis, Exodus, starting to get into Leviticus and is like, at what point does it really kind of clearly talk about Jesus here? And in, her, in that process, she, she came to the point where, where she called out to God, gave her life to Jesus, had a genuine encounter with him, but made this kind of agreement with herself is, yeah, I'll follow God, but I'm not going to tell anybody. Here's the thing, though. Eventually, genuine faith never remains private. It works itself out in our lives. We begin to be transformed and act differently. Now, the text isn't so much saying that the moment of your conversion is only genuine if you tell others about Jesus right away. And we know from experience, some people will, but other people won't. What the text is telling us that genuine saving faith has inward and outward dynamics. Genuine faith will inevitably sink down roots into our heart and work itself out in ways that bear fruit, that aren't merely saying stuff, but reveal we're being transformed and it can't be ignored. I would venture a guess that many of you said the sinner's prayer at some point, maybe repeating the words back that a youth leader or preacher or family member led you through. Now, the fact that this text talks about believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth, we just need to recognize the sinner's prayer is helpful, but it's not a magic bullet. It's not magic words. It's not just saying the magic words. It's surrendering your life entirely over to Christ and letting him transform you from the inside out. So Jesus put it this way in Luke 6, 45, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil for out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. What God does in this inward work will inevitably work itself out. And we are to believe and we are to confess. And genuine faith will always do those things. And so God has used the sinner's prayer as the moment of true conversion for many. We just, we, we need to recognize that it's not simply saying the words that saves. It's the heart and the mouth. I find the sinner's prayer to be a really useful tool what we need to recognize is that the substance of such a prayer that we're inviting someone into must captivate a heart and inevitably then it will transform a life. Now talking about two sides of the same coin, talking about repentance and faith, 
What we must do is we must let go of the things in our hands in order to turn to Jesus. So, so the way that Jesus finds us when he calls us is as people with hands full. Hands full of sin, hands full of our own righteousness, hands full of our own way. And in order to turn to Jesus, we must let those go in order to embrace Christ. Our hands are full and we're turning and we must let them go if we are to embrace Jesus Christ. So that turn involves both turning from sin and to Christ. The only way we come to Christ is empty-handed with a recognition that Jesus can handle, that can take our sin upon himself, that that's what the cross was all about. He takes our sin, he deals with our sin, but we don't bring our life, we don't bring our ways and, and work those in to following Jesus. No, we, have to, we must let go of all of that stuff in order to embrace Jesus. Our hands must be empty in order to embrace Christ. All that's necessary is to transfer all our hopes out of our hands and our control and into Christ's. And listen to what Paul says in verse 11. Everyone who believes in me will not be put to shame. That means we will never regret trusting in Jesus instead of ourselves. And who is it that can put their trust in Jesus? Look at verses 12 and 13. They say, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Here's what that means. Anyone can do this. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile when it comes to who needs salvation and who it's available to. The gospel is for you to receive. Let's move on to looking at three elements that are present in conversion. Here's the first. It's a basic understanding of the facts of the gospel. Now just before our text in verse eight, it talks about the word being near you. Paul says the word is near you. This word is a truth that must be known. This truth, the facts of the gospel, are seen as consisting of, first, confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and second, believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. So first, the facts of the gospel that we must grasp, have basic understanding of, is that confessing with our mouth that Jesus is Lord has to do with the person of Jesus. This is a reference to all we know about Jesus' divine identity. The word Lord, that Jesus is Lord, Paul says here, is the same word used over 6,000 times in the Greek Old Testament for the name of God. So for the Jews, this title for Jesus was significant. Jesus is Lord. And Lord was used frequently among the Gentiles for a deity or for the emperor who was himself worshiped as a God. And so Jesus is Lord was significant. So to call Jesus Lord was to claim that Jesus was divine and the supreme authority over the world. It has to do with the person of Jesus and who he is. And to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead has to do with the work of Jesus. We must believe that Jesus was raised from the dead and therefore that he died. In other words, we must believe in Christ's life, death, and resurrection for our sins. But 
Acknowledgement of these things isn't enough. Saving faith involves more than mere knowledge of some facts. The most straightforward example I can give you is James chapter two, verse 19, where it says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Mere intellectual assent is not sufficient for salvation. Pastor Eldon preached on the gospel call and the verse, how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? There are some things that must be known. There is something that must be proclaimed and received, a knowledge of things. And so saving faith involves basic understanding of the facts of the gospel, but more than that. Second, it involves agreement with the basic facts of the gospel. Saving faith also involves agreeing that the basic facts of the gospel are true. This word referred to in verse eight is a truth that must be believed. But again, basic understanding of the facts and agreement with them aren't enough. In John chapter three, there's a Pharisee named Nicodemus. And he said to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And so Nicodemus has evaluated Jesus' teaching and miracles and drawn a correct conclusion about the facts. Jesus was of God. But that alone didn't mean that Nicodemus had saving faith. Jesus would go on to say, unless someone is born again, they cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is like, say what now? And he's super confused by it. He still needed to put his trust in Christ for salvation. I have a buddy that I've had a number of faith conversations with. And he said to me multiple times, Matt, don't give up on me, man. Don't give up on me. And what he means by that is, look, I acknowledge what you're saying about Jesus. And I I think I even agree with you about the gospel. But I'm not really, really willing right now to have like a come to Jesus moment. So keep working on me. Look, he, he, he understands what the gospel is and he may even have some acknowledgement that, yeah, I think that's probably true, but not that third element of conversion, which is this, a decision of the will to depend on and trust in Jesus. So we are to entrust our whole self to the person and work of Jesus as our righteousness. So the faith that saves It's not just a general acknowledgement of the basic facts of the gospel and agreement with them, but dependent trust in the work of Christ, in his death and resurrection for us. This belief in the truth about Jesus in our hearts, our turning to Christ with empty hands and full surrender is what makes us Christians. It's answering the call, responding by turning from sin and turning to Christ. Empty-handed, we bring nothing to it. But responding, is it a works righteousness? No, we bring nothing, but we do come. Now I'd like to share four implications about conversion for our lives. Here's the first one, it's a question. Have you been saved? To use the, work, the, the language of Romans 10, have you been saved? says, verse nine, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, look, we're working through some pretty epic doctrines 
in this series. They, they, they get pretty dense, they get pretty substantive, sort of some deep end of the pool type stuff. And I'm not going to apologize for that, okay? Many of you have studied or are studying right now biology and chemistry and things like trigonometry. And so I think you can handle some theology. That said, that said, I need to make this really clear. You don't need to get the depth of it all right now in order to get Jesus. I just did a couple of baptism ministry partnership classes. Many of you were there. We are going to baptize a number of people on Easter Sunday. But I always tell the folks that are going to get baptized and become ministry partners, we're, look, we're going to study some theology and what we believe, but don't be scared of that. You'll spend your lifetime finding more riches about the gospel and about the picture of salvation that baptism is, but I just want to see you have a basic comprehension and experience of the gospel. And so if you're like, man, conversion sounds too complicated, I, I just want to talk to you for a minute. Here's the beauty, here's the, the beautiful simplicity of it all. Turn from your sin and turn to Jesus and you will be saved. And I felt burdened lately. I, I, I believe that there are some who need to do this today. And I'm just trusting that the Lord has put that on my heart. And some of you just need to hear this really simply. Are you saved? I want to invite you. Jesus beckons you. Turn from your sin and turn to Jesus and you will be saved. Do you believe that Jesus died? That, that, yeah, you've been carrying a bunch of stuff. And maybe you've been feeling guilt over it or heavy burdens that plague you. Maybe you're coming to the realization that, man, my way doesn't get me anywhere, will not save me, will not make me right with God. I need another. Jesus died to pay the penalty for that burden, for that stuff that you can lay it to rest, that you can place it at his feet. He hung on a cross to bear your burden and you get to embrace Christ and say, you know what, I'm done with my record. I want his. Do you believe that Jesus died for you and that he rose again? Right now he's ruling and reigning in heaven and what he's experienced is pro experiencing right now is promised to you when you turn from your sin and you turn to Christ, eternal security, an eternal future with Jesus in heaven. Do you believe that? Everyone, verse 13 says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Here's what's glorious. Jesus loves you and is mighty to save None of you are in a situation so dire. None of you have committed a sin that's too great for the loving mercy of God. Are you saved? Call on Jesus. Come to Jesus. His yoke is easy and his burden is light and you will find rest for your soul. Here's a second implication about conversion for our lives. The hard attitudes of repentance and faith start at conversion, 
but continue throughout the Christian life. Throughout each week of Lent, we're, we're focusing on a different line of the Lord's Prayer. Jesus' disciples came to him at one point and were like, Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus said, well, pray like this. And when he said pray like this, he didn't, say, he didn't mean, it wasn't in the sense of pray this once. It was in the sense of pray and keep on praying like this. And one of the lines is forgive us our debts, meaning sins that have indebted us. We are in debt before God. And so we repent initially. And that's part of his saving work in our lives. But we continue to sin and to struggle. But the promise remains. And so we are to continue to have a posture of repentance. It should be in our regular lives that we say, Lord, forgive me of my debts, knowing that he can and he will. To repent means to turn from sin and turn to Jesus. This never stops. We keep coming to our Savior. We keep relying on our Savior. We keep facing Jesus. Repentance and faith. The hard attitudes of repentance and faith continue throughout the life of the Christian. And here's the glorious part about that. Jesus died to save you and lives to intercede for you. You are loved by God. Repentance and faith are not a threat or a burden. They are a glorious gift. When we are converted, it's upon that initial repentance and faith in our lives and the remainder of the Christian life we glory in is that we get to continue to repent and be forgiven and to continue to trust in Jesus and his righteousness for salvation. Here's the third implication about conversion for our lives. We must preach, teach, and share both aspects, both sides of the coin as it pertains to conversion. I'm gonna press this one a little bit. It's not uncommon for the gospel to be preached as only putting your faith in Jesus without preaching repentance. It's not uncommon, and yet it's a cheap gospel. Further than that, it's actually harmful. See, it's impossible to truly turn to Jesus without simultaneously turning from our sinful reliance on our own achievements and idolatry. It's cheap to try and add Jesus on to the priority of our lives. He must become both Lord and Savior, Savior and Lord. I think that's one of the reasons why some preaching of the gospel has such inadequate results. Preaching the need for faith in Jesus without the need for repentance is only half the gospel message and its result is deceiving people into thinking they've heard the gospel and tried it, but nothing happened. It didn't take, it didn't add to their lives. It didn't change them. And so they walk away because with no true repentance comes no real change of life. This weakened gospel, this weakened gospel that is taught so prevalently today, especially in the North American context that I witness. This weakened gospel results in crowds of professing Christians whose lives are no different from the surrounding culture and who really aren't saved at all. I need you to hear this. Conversion means turning from sin and turning to Christ. Repentance and faith. Not a pithy prayer for the sake of some get out of jail free card, but a surrendered life, an encounter with the living God, being born again and seeing the fruit of a transformed life. Jesus said, whoever would come after me must take up their cross and follow me. It's costly, but hear me, it's worth it. 
You'll never regret it. Our community and world needs the real gospel so that lives can be really changed. Fourth implication. Your conversion means you have a new heart and therefore real power to fight sin. This is a really practical, wonderful encouragement. Look, it's common to feel determined by your sin, that it defines you, that it's who you are. But your conversion means you're no longer bound by sin, but set free in Christ, created in the likeness of God. Listen to Ephesians chapter four, starting in verse 22, it tells us, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. In verse 24, and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. In other words, as you seek to put off the old self, God makes it a reality. Your conversion means you really will change and grow and put on Christ. Your whole trajectory has moved from following sin to following Jesus and this works itself out in your practical life. Now, if you're discouraged in your fight with sin in your life, hear me, even when the fight is long, the power of change comes from the recognition of what Christ has done in making you a new person. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you and is available to you to put off sin and put on Christ. Go to him. Walk with him. Keep in step with the spirit. Jesus has birthed a living faith in you. You are Christ's and you, my converted brothers and sisters, are being transformed more and more into his likeness. The British preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones illustrated it this way. He said, imagine a country in which one group of people has for centuries enslaved another group of people. So whenever a member of the enslaved group would meet a member of the oppressing group on the street, the oppressor could order the other person around, and if they didn't obey, the member of the oppressing group could have them beaten or killed. They had the right and power to do it. But then a good king comes into power and decrees emancipation of all the slaves, and he puts soldiers and police officers and judges in place to ensure that his decrees get put in motion, and they are set free. But is that all it really takes? The reality is that whenever a member of the enslaved group who had been enslaved their whole lives from a group that had been enslaved for centuries, whenever they would encounter a member of the oppressing group, they would tremble and quake. And when a member of the oppressing group would still order around members of the enslaved group, they did it. The oppressing group didn't have the power to do that anymore. And if the formerly enslaved individuals stood up against it, the oppressors couldn't have done a thing. And yet over and over and over again, the members of the enslaved group continued to act like slaves. Because even though their status had changed, they, they truly were free. They hadn't fully grasped it hadn't realized it. 
They couldn't live according to it. They remained as slaves. In that regard, that's the condition of every Christian who struggles with sin. It's, it's, it's the only reason you and I do anything wrong. The only reason we still veer off course and why we can't break our habits. We have a real status change. It's not just symbolic. It really happened. You are no longer a slave to sin. You have a new heart. You have been set free. So put off the old self and put on the new self. Repentance and faith. Turn from God. (laughs) Turn from sin and to Christ and you will be saved. Repentance and faith. Put off the old self and put on the new self for you are being transformed. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for this beautiful declaration, beautiful promise. If we believe in our hearts, confess with our mouths the truth about the gospel, if we turn from sin and turn to you, we will be saved. Praise God. Thank you. And Jesus, I pray over our congregation in this moment. Lord, I pray that we would live into this transforming work that you have done in our hearts. You have given us new life. We have responded in faith and we are free. Form us more and more into your likeness. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.